Well, I didn't receive any hate mail from Republicans or from Democrats this week after last week's sermon, and so I trust that means that all of us, for a time, set aside our political views and our political affiliations and that we heard from God uh, and not the government as we look together at His Word. If you weren't here last week, and very many of you weren't here, Clemson lost, I didn't say that. That'll teach you. But if you weren't here, you did not hear the collective gasp that was uttered when I shared the story of a response that was written in an Oklahoma newspaper to a suggestion that was made that as a state, Oklahoma should issue disaster warnings in English and Spanish. That suggestion came as a result of a a tornado in May that took the life of nine Guatemalans because they weren't unable to understand the storm warnings or to prepare for the storm. And so someone responded to that suggestion, if they don't speak English, they don't deserve to live. So we gasped, truly, in stunned offense that someone would say such a thing. When we read about injustice... When we see injustice, when we hear about it, we usually are offended. We are. But the question is, what do we do about injustice? What do we do about with that offense that we feel? Where does it lead you? To pity? Oh, poor thing. To anger? Oh, I can't believe someone would say such a thing. Or, or, or something more. See, our offense should lead us to, to action. Action that works to right the injustice that we see around us. Action that works to right the wrongs that we inflict ourselves in our lives and in our relationships. Action that mercifully works to, to provide for needs and to relieve the suffering that we see around us. You know, if we are not acting, or if you and I at least are not willing to act, something is out of line in our understanding of Christianity, who it is that God has called us to be, who it is that he enables us to be. And so we need the word of God to to right us, to put us back in line, to set us on the path in which you and I should be going. And that's my prayer. That, That will happen this morning as we come to the word of the living God. So if you have your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together once again the word of the one and only true and living God. Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, this is Moses speaking. At that time I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. You answered me. What you propose is good. And so I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands of fifties, of hundreds of fifties and of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, whether the case is between brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. 
Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time, I told you everything you were to do. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that you would bless, as you promised, the reading and hearing of your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, who indwells us, your people. We pray now that he would lead us and guide us into truth, uh, your truth, as we look together at your word. And Father, we pray that the truth that you reveal to us would transform our hearts and that, Lord, from our hearts, uh, that our hands would move. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, we began to look at God's desire that his covenant community, the people that were called by his name, would be people who seek justice and extend mercy so that the nations around them would look at God's people and say this, the people who love uh, Jehovah, the people who worship God, they are people of justice and mercy. And so in order to accomplish that, Moses organized God's people into groups of thousands and hundreds and, and fifties and tens, so that no one would be lost, no one would fall through the cracks, Instead, all would be cared for. And he appointed judges over each of these groups. Last week, we talked about the scope of that justice. And we saw that the scope of it was broad and it was deep. Because everyone, everyone who found themselves living among the people of Israel were entitled to justice. Your country of origin didn't matter. You were to receive justice. The social strata from which you came didn't matter. You could be at the top. You could be great, considered important among men. You were to receive justice. Maybe you were insignificant in the eyes of the world, but you too were to receive justice. The judges were required to judge without partiality, without showing any favoritism. And so last week, we also looked at two celebrations that God designed to ensure that justice and mercy would mark his covenant community. One was the sabbatical year, which was to be observed every seven years. The other was called the year of Jubilee, and it was to be observed every 50 years. Now, between these two celebrations, four things were to happen, just broadly speaking. Every seven years, all debts, all debts were to be canceled, wiped out. Secondly, The land and the people were to rest for one year. The fields were not to be planted or harvested during that year. Thirdly, all slaves, all slaves, along with their children, were to be set free. And fourthly, all land, all land, no matter how many times it had been sold or to whom it had been sold, in the course of 49 years, in the 50th year, in the year of Jubilee, that land was to be given back to its original owner. And so this was like periodically unplugging and rebooting the social system of Israel. The community might get out of whack, you know, during 49 years. It would be easy to do, you know, because of the greed of some, because of adverse conditions for others, because tragedy struck, whatever reason, the community of faith that, that together had God as their father, it could get out of balance. 
And so in the sabbatical year, in the year of Jubilee, this balance could be restored. People could, could rest. People could have hope again. And the promise of a fresh start for those who needed it. But mostly, it was a physical reminder to the people that all they had rightfully belonged to God. Give the land back, God said, because it belongs to me, not to you. You're just my tenants. Let the slaves go free, God said. Why? Because they don't belong to you. They belong to me. You belong to me. All of you together are my servants. So if those truths had been forgotten along the way, if someone in their life had gotten out of balance in their thinking, that all they had in their life was a result of their genius or a result of their ingenuity or their business savvy, these years would be a spiritual reboot for them. So, how do you think the people of Israel received this instruction about the, the, the year of Jubilee and the sabbatical year. How, how eager do you think they were to implement what was required? Well, perhaps you can judge their willingness to actually do these things by your own reaction as you heard this preached last week. Perhaps you found it a little bit too socialistic in its approach. Unfair to those who had worked so hard in their lives to get ahead. And maybe you fear that your pastor was on the slippery slope to liberalism. <sighs> Let's think about the Israelites and their story and how they should have, how they should have received this instruction. As you know, not so long ago, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt. And this was their life. The, the Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar. With all kinds of work in the fields and all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Pharaoh sent this order to the Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite foremen. Do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Make the people get it themselves. But still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. And so the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt in search of stubble to use as straw. Meanwhile, the Egyptian slave drivers continued to push hard. Meet your daily quota of bricks, just as you did when we provided you with straw, they demanded. Then they whipped the Israelite foreman they had put in charge of the work crews. Why haven't you met your quotas either, yesterday or today, they demanded. Oh yeah, and let's not forget this part of their story. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live, and so the Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. That was life in Egypt. What was the reason for murdering their children and enslaving them? Only one. They were Israelites, descendants of Joseph. But the real reason was fear. The slogan in Egypt at that day could have been Egypt for the Egyptians. 
Because the Egyptians feared that the Israelites would become so numerous that they might take over. And for that simple reason, simply because they weren't true Egyptians, their sons were murdered and they as a race were enslaved. And so the Israelites know a little about injustice, don't you think? The Israelites know a little bit about how it feels to be treated without any mercy at all. And so what kind of people should those experiences, what kind of people should that kind of suffering make the Israelites to be when they are given the opportunity to form their own nation, their own community, to put it together from the ground up? What should it be like? Do you remember what it was like to be a freshman in high school? Y'all freshmen? Any of y'all freshmen? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Remember what it was like to be a freshman at the bottom of the totem pole? Remember all the abuse that you suffered from the hands of the upperclassmen? Remember how all the privileges went to them, particularly the seniors, while the freshmen got the worst of everything. Remember? It was so unfair. And remember swearing to your freshman self that when you were a senior, you would be different. You were not going to treat freshmen the way you had been treated. But when you weren't a freshman anymore, when you were a senior, what happened to that promise? Don't answer that question. Or maybe you joined a fraternity and you actually survived the hazing. And maybe you thought during the worst of that, that if you made it through, you would not treat the next pledge the way you were being treated. But what happened? When the rush was over, you were no longer a pledge. What happened when it was your turn to be in charge? Don't answer that. Let me just read one passage that describes what the Israelites became when they had their own nation, not immediately, but eventually. This is from Amos chapter 5. God says to them, You twist justice, making it a bitter pill for the oppressed. You treat the righteous like dirt. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So those who are smart keep their mouths shut. For it is an evil time. And yet the Israelites continued to worship God. Until he said, away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want a mighty flood, a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. See what happened? The Israelites became what they hated. There is no clear evidence in Scripture or in history that the Israelites ever even one time celebrated the year of Jubilee. What happened? to those people who had been so sorely abused and mistreated? What happened to their sense of justice and mercy? Again, as we have in the past, we need to look at the ancient Israelites, not to point a finger at them, but to look at the human heart. It goes against the natural inclination of our hearts to seek justice and to extend mercy to other people. It's not what we do. Why do you think Jesus told the story of the unmerciful servant? Do you remember that story? A master called in a servant who owed him 10,000 talents in today's 
uh, a currency, it would be like $6 billion. Jesus' point is the man owed an incalculable amount that he could never pay back. Well, the, the master brought him in and said, pay me back what you owe me. But he was not able to pay. And so the master said, then I'm going to have you and your family thrown in prison until you can repay the debt. But the servant fell on his knees before the master and he begged, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. And so the master took pity on him, Jesus said, and canceled the debt and let him go. That servant then went out and found someone who owed him money, just a minuscule amount of money. And he demanded that he be paid back. The other man said, I, I, I can't pay you. Be patient with me and I will pay you back everything that I owe you. But, but, but the other servant began to, to, to choke him and, and demanded his pay. And instead of showing mercy, he had him cast into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and told the master everything that the servant had done. And then the master called in that servant that he had forgiven And he said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? What is the answer to that question? What is the answer to that question? Yeah, that's the right answer. Look, Jesus wouldn't waste his time telling a story that did not intersect with the reality of the human heart. If this attitude were not present in our hearts, Jesus would not have told a story to expose it because there would be nothing in our hearts to expose. But he tells the story because that is what is in the human heart. And you and I can't forever exclude ourselves from these ugly portraits that we see in Scripture as if We are better. Listen, the Israelites didn't act the way they acted because they were some kind of mutant human beings. They weren't. They were human. And Jesus told the story, and it can't just be for other people. He told it because mercilessness and injustice lurks in our hearts, all of our hearts. And it's got to be exposed if it will ever be corrected. And that correction can only come through a radical heart change. And that's what the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee required. The sabbatical was radical. That's mine. I thought that myself. (laughs) But it's true. The idea of, of taking a year off in an agrarian culture from planting and harvesting, radical. Requiring radical faith and radical trust that the Lord would provide. The requirement of canceling all the debts owed to you, the demand that you loan somebody money even in the sixth year, even though you are never going to get your money back, radical. Requiring radical faith and trust that God would bless this kind of radical obedience. The requirement that every 50 years you give all the land back and set all the slaves free, radical. Requiring radical faith and trust that God would bless this kind of radical obedience to Him. See, I think part of our struggle with seeking justice and extending mercy, and with our Christian life in general, is that we don't see it as the radical thing that it truly is. The incarnation, God himself coming to earth, that's radical. 
the perfect, holy God of the universe living in human form among the sights and the smells and the consequences and the filth of sin, that's radical. God dying on a cross is radical. And yet we want Christianity to be nice. So nice. But that's the wrong attitude. That's the wrong adjective for for what it is and what it requires. We should be nice people, don't get me wrong, but in a radical way. And so God knows that radical nature uh, of the demand of His people. And maybe that's part of His objective in requiring it of them and of us to shake us out of any complacency that we might be delusional enough to harbor about what it means to be in a relationship with God. Conservative, moderate, temperate, middle of the road, not the way to think about Christianity. Not the way to think about what dealing with our sin required. A radical act from a radical God. Your life now and my life if we are truly living in the power of the Spirit, ought to be radically different than it was before we came to faith in Christ. And if you really can't tell the difference between the two, if believing the gospel was just a nice little add-on to your life that gave you something to do on Sunday morning, then, then something's not right. Before the believing the gospel, you did not have the Spirit of Christ in you. After believing the gospel, you had the Spirit of Christ living in you. And He, the Spirit, must make a radical difference. And so we look for that difference. You look for it in your life. And I look for it in my life. Because that difference that should be there has fingerprints. And it leaves a trail of evidence wherever it goes. And at the very top of the list of evidence that would convict you and convict me of truly being a believer in Christ is a desire to seek justice and extend mercy. A desire that we have in our hearts to to do what's right, to live rightly, to treat others rightly. A desire to do something to correct injustice that we see around us instead of being complacent and uninvolved. A desire to give mercy. Because we have received such tremendous mercy. Because the justice of God completely confounds and amazes us. We turn to Romans chapter 3. Just going to look at one verse. Romans 3, verse 25. We could preach an entire sermon on this. But Romans 3, verse 25 says this in the NIV, that God presented him, Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, because God is a holy God. You know this. He cannot dwell in the presence of sin. Because God is a just God, sin cannot be overlooked. 
God can't just wink at sin. It can't be swept under the rug. It is too ugly for that. It's too serious for that. It's too devastating to people's lives because it works itself out in injustice that says, if you can't speak English, you don't deserve to live. It steps on and over people in need. That's what sin does. It demands make bricks, but it doesn't give you anything to make them and then beat you because you don't make what you can't make. Sin makes us receive all the blessings and all the goodness of God in our lives and give the credit to that and the thanks for that to someone or to something else. That's not right. And it robs God of the glory and the thanks he deserves for who he is and what he has done for us and the abilities that he's given to us. And so it's no wonder that God's wrath is against the ugliness and the injustice and the destructiveness of sin. And so sin has to be dealt with if God is just, really. Or anyone who sins will die without the possibility of ever being in the presence of a holy God. And so that's what Jesus did. He came to earth to deal with sin. God in the flesh to be the sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath towards sin and wipe that sin away without ceasing to be just. God demanded that a price be paid for sin and guess what? He paid it himself so that we get life, so that we get forgiveness. How can we ever cease to be amazed by the gospel? How can we ever uh, tire of hearing it? How can it ever cease to be the source of life and what drives us to extend mercy that we have received in this incomparable form of justice, God's justice toward us? Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17. It says there, Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. What does that mean by implication? That God is a judge. And that everyone, without exception, whether they believe it or not, everyone, all of us included, will stand before God. You'll stand before Him. I'll stand before Him. And give an account. And God will pass judgment. And I think we forget that. I think we forget that we will all stand before God, that, that He is our judge, that He's the one we should fear. And so Jesus says in Matthew 10, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, preachers don't like to talk about this anymore. And Bible teachers don't like to talk about this anymore. Let's not mention it. At least not progressive ones who really seek, I just want to be relevant, man, to, 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 my, to my culture. And this kind of talk, you know, it offends people. It drives them away. You won't have any opportunity to I- interact with them. And, and you know what? That just motivates people through fear. And so we, in all our wisdom, we deem it best not to talk about this anymore. That God is a judge. That God can destroy both soul and body in hell. But let me ask you this. What is our wisdom producing? Is it producing a strong church? I think the evidence suggests other than that. You're alive with me right now as well as I am in this country. And we see that every day 
our country becomes less and less Christian. Do you agree? If the church were strong, would that be the case? Instead, it is weak and anemic. Perhaps we should convince ourselves, you know, to to remind people that God is their judge on on whom uh, he will pass judgment. The word for judgment used in verse 17 simply means to give someone their due. And what is our due because of sin is death. And that's what God's justice requires. And that's why the gospel is such good news. You know what? You and I don't have to wait. We don't have to wring our hands, be nervous and say, what's God going to say when I stand before him? What's he going to say? What decision is he going to make? What's the verdict going to be? We don't have to live that way. When you and I place our faith in Christ for salvation, the verdict has already been passed. And God has let that gavel fall and his verdict is what? Not guilty. Is that good news? And the benefit of that judgment right now is access to God. Not just for eternity, but for right now. But we live like people who believe the opposite. We too often fear man and forget God. Maybe because we can't see him. Peer pressure, for instance, you guys experience it. I'm 50. I experience it too. You know, that's nothing but fear of man. Acting in ways because you fear what other people will say about you or think about you. Forget about it. Forget about it. Judgment belongs to God. And if you have faith in Christ, that judgment is life, eternal life. That's your due now. That's what's due you because of Christ. Life. Because you believe Jesus. He said to you, if you have faith in me, your sins will be forgiven and you will have eternal life. And you believed him. And you did what he said. And you placed your faith in him and now life is what is due you. Such mercy. Such mercy. This isn't about deserving anything. This isn't about who deserves what. We deserve to die. That's the truth. And this is about demonstrating the radical, the radical nature of our salvation. The radical nature of the transformation that has taken place in us through the Spirit of God who lives within us. We seek justice, even for undeserving people. When we extend mercy, even to undeserving people, we trumpet this. I believe the gospel is true. I am overwhelmed by what I have received from the Lord. It isn't about being abused or unappreciated. I guarantee you this, we will be both. Those we help will abuse us. Guarantee it. Not all of them, but some. Those we help will not appreciate us. Those we help may betray us. They may turn their back on us. But you know what? That sounds vaguely familiar to me. To what Jesus experienced. When he gave all that he had to give, his very life. He didn't say, it's my life. I'm going to keep it for myself. He didn't say, look at how they act. They don't deserve my life. He didn't say, they might abuse my sacrifice. He just acted to satisfy God's justice and to extend mercy to us. And if we truly understand the gospel and its work in our hearts, then we will no doubt be growing more and more and more and more in our desire. to to live rightly, to do what's right, and to seek justice for others and to extend mercy. We who are strong in the gospel will help the weak, be people of mercy. You know, last week we had the deacons stand. 
And they stood and we prayed for them and we continue to pray for them. I'm telling you now to pray, asking you now to pray for them. That they will lead us as a church to find these outlets like this uh, mentoring opportunity. To let loose all the grace that's been lavished on us. To let it just gush out of us onto others. To let loose all the truth that's bottled up inside us so that we make a difference in the world. As conservative evangelical Christians, I sound like I'm on a soapbox this morning, don't I? Woo, anyway, we, you know, we, we devote countless hours to studying the Word and to teaching it to others, and that's good. The Word of God is great. We need to study it and, and know it. But when would God say to us or to you, close your Bible, just close your Bible, get up from your chair and go do something. Do something with the truth that you are learning. We're done. If you'll just do this for me, turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is called a royal psalm. And it's a prayer for all those in the line of King David who will rule over God's people. It's a prayer that they would rule well. But ultimately, it looks forward to the ultimate king, the great king, the greatest king from the line of David, and that is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Psalm 72 says, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. That's what a good king does. It's what a good believer in Christ does. And this psalm shows us that full Christianity, full Christianity goes just or goes beyond just the proclamation of the gospel. True Christianity proclaims the gospel of Christ and it seeks justice and it extends mercy even to the undeserving, wherever it's found. And so may Redeemer, Presbyterian, be truly Christian in the land in which God has blessed us and that through us they will be blessed. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask now that because your spirit indwells us, your people, that we would be a shining light to the city of Charleston and to the nations of the world. That we would submit ourselves to you, Lord, and that your will would be done through us and that your kingdom would come here on earth. And Lord, we know what that kingdom is like. It's a kingdom of justice and mercy. And so, Lord, I pray that we would can be, be convinced this morning, not by my words, but by your words, of the requirement that you place on our lives to look around us and where we see injustice, Lord, to do whatever it is that we can do to right it. Lord, when we can extend mercy to someone, that we would take the time and make the commitment be willing to sacrifice so that we can extend your mercy to them. Or the only way that change of heart is going to come to us 
in a way the, the, the radical uh, lifestyle that you require will be ours is when we truly understand what you've done for us. So every day, Lord, I pray that we would remember the gospel, that we would be overwhelmed by it. Your unbelievable justice, that you would take on yourself, that you would pay yourself what we owe and let us go free. Lord, I pray that that would just transform our hearts and lives. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.